Welcome back, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. You're tuned into Questions for Corbett. And this week, our question comes in via the contact form on CorbettReport.com. It's another one of those questions that I frequently receive in various forms. So we'll tackle this particular instantiation of the question coming from John, who writes, I fully believe that there are nefarious people conspiring behind the scenes, but I keep getting asked this question, and I'm having trouble answering it within myself, let alone to others. Is it reasonable to believe that there are enough people in power to actually hoodwink basically the whole planet and have the ability to dominate almost the entirety of media to the point where millions of people may be being culled from the planet right now and the whole thing is being hushed up? There must be at least as many good scientists as evil ones. How can it be reasonable? Thank you very much for this question, John. As I say, it is clearly one that resonates with a lot of people because I do get this question quite frequently from a number of different people in various forms, and it's an understandable one. I'm sure that when first encountering the information that sends people down the rabbit hole, they have probably felt this question themselves, had to deal or grapple with this question themselves. And if you are one of the people who have not ever had to really think about that or answer this question for yourself, I guarantee that you have had to answer this question when presenting it to others. So it is important that we do have a good answer to this. Unfortunately, as with so many of these questions, very simple to formulate the question, the answer itself obviously requires more care, attention, and detail, and very much depends on the context of the claims that you are defending. Uh, in this particular case, it seems that John's question is specifically about hoodwinking basically the entire planet about an ongoing active campaign to cull millions of people from the planet that is happening right now. And there are many different ways that one could interpret what that, what the claims there even are. So, let, let's take a one broad approach to this to see how we can start tackling a question like this. And let's just look at the question of, is there a concerted attempt by people in positions of power with wealth and, and political power uh, to affect those plans to actually cull the human population, or at the very least to prevent the human population from growing at, an, at whatever its natural um, pace would be? And the answer is a resounding yes. And like so many of these types of questions, I want to once again come back to this fundamental answer. Everyone is always looking for the super secret conspiracy that's being hidden by 18 layers of secrecy and that no one can ever really know because you can never penetrate that far into the secret, secret place of the secrecy. But actually, so many of these conspiracies are open conspiracies. And I think that's that really is an idea that we need to re repopularize in the public consciousness. Uh, as I say, this is not my formulation. This is going back to H.G. Wells a century ago, writing about the open conspiracy and how there was an open conspiracy, essentially for technocracy. He didn't call it as such, but that's what he was talking about, the, the brotherhood of scientists and engineers who were going to transform the human population and the planet itself. And he was writing about that as being an open conspiracy back in the time. Well, there is still that very sentiment of open conspiracy around so many of these subjects that we don't need to pierce the 18 layers of secrecy in order to find out what the broad aims of this plan are. We can see them from on-the-record statements that have been made for, well, depending on the topic, for centuries. Uh, when we look specifically at this particular refined topic of is there some sort of culling of the human species going on or some attempt to do so, there are a number of 
on-the-record quotations that are highly relevant and highly illustrative and highly enlightening um, about the, the mindset of some of these people and the, the way that they see this open conspiracy functioning. So, for example, let's turn to Charles Galton Darwin, whose name might give away the fact that, yes, this is a descendant of both uh, uh, Charles Darwin and his cousin, Francis Galton. He's in that Galton-Darwin family line. And uh, people will know about that family line and its significance if they've followed my work on eugenics. So I've talked about this a number of times. But yes, this is uh, the namesake of literally Charles Darwin and Francis Galton, who in 1953 wrote a book called The Next Million Years, which again is quite open about these types of plans. So for example, we can read on page 183, another type of discovery may be connected with hormones, those internal chemical secretions which so largely regulate the operations of the human body. The artificial use of hormones has already been shown to have profound effects on the behavior of animals, and it seems quite possible that hormones, or perhaps drugs, might have similar effects on man. For example, there might be a drug which, without other harmful effects, removed the urgency of sexual desire, and so reproduced in humanity the status of workers in a beehive. Or there might be another drug that produced a permanent state of contentment in the recipient. After all, alcohol does something like this already, though it has other disadvantages and is only temporary in its effects. A dictator would certainly welcome the compulsory administration of the contentment drug to his subjects. Move along uh, to Bertrand Russell, The Impact of Science and Society, writing the year before Charles Galton Darwin on much the same subject. And I will invite you to explore that book at your leisure, but let's look at this quote from page 92. Diet injections and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable, and any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Uh, a few years Onwards from this, we have Aldous Huxley, of course, the author of Brave New World and part of the Huxley fa family line, which is also an interesting family line to examine, going back to T.H. Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, and there at the uh, foundations of what would become the eugenics movement, uh, moving forward into Aldous Huxley and his brother Julian, who, of course, not only was the founder of UNESCO, but openly wrote about the need to repopularize the idea of eugenics or to get the public to accept the ideas of eugenics, who was also there at the founding of the World Wildlife Federation with some very interesting people. Again, I've gone through this history, for example, in my Big Oil documentary, so I hope you'll be familiar with it. But you may, if you are a listener of the Corbett Report, may already know, but if not, you should become familiar with his 1961 lecture at Berkeley on the final revolution. I notice in this um, most recent issue of the Scientific American, there's a very interesting article on electrodes in the brains of chickens, uh, where the, the technique is, is very ingenious. You, you sink into their brains a little um, socket with, with a screw on it, and the electrode then can be screwed deeper and deeper into the brain stem. And you can test at any moment, according to the depth, of, uh, which goes in fractions of a millimeter, of what you're stimulating. And, and these creatures are not merely uh, stimulated by wire. They are fitted with a, a miniaturized radio receiver weighing less than an ounce, which is attached to them, uh, so that they can be communicated with uh, at a distance. I mean, they can run about in the barnyard, and you can press the button. And uh, the, this particular area of the brain to which the electrode has been screwed down to will be stimulated and <coughs> you will get these uh, 
fantastic phenomena that a, uh, a sleepy chicken will suddenly get up and rush about or a, uh, an active chicken will suddenly sit down and go to sleep or a hen will suddenly start sitting as though it were, uh, were hatching out an egg uh, or a rooster will start fighting or will suddenly go into a state of extreme depression. Uh, the, uh, the whole picture of the absolute control of the drives is, a, uh, is terrifying. And uh, in the cases, the few cases in which this has been done with very sick human beings, uh, the effects are evidently very remarkable too. I was talking last summer to, uh, in England, to Gray Walter, who is the um, most eminent exponent of the electroencephalogram techniques in England, and he was telling me that they, he's seen hopeless uh, inmates of asylums with these things in in their heads and that uh, these people were suffering from the uncontrollable depression and they were they'd had a, the electrodes inserted into something resembling evidently the pleasure center of the rat uh, anyhow when they felt too bad they just pressed a button the battery in their pocket and he said the result was fantastic the mouth would go down would suddenly turn up and they would evidently feel for, I don't know for how long at a time very cheerful and happy so that <clears throat> here again one sees uh, the most uh, uh, extraordinary uh, revolutionary techniques uh, which are now available uh, to us or we could move along to 1977 to a textbook co-authored by Paul Ehrlich his wife Anne Ehrlich and their friend John Holdren uh, who has been around a number of administrations, including a science advisor for the Obama administration, uh, who co-wrote a textbook called Eco-Science, uh, in which they talked about various forms of compulsory sterilization that may be necessary to solve the population crisis, including, quote, adding a sterilant to drinking water or staple foods is a suggestion that seems to horrify people more than most proposals for involuntary fertility control. Indeed, this would pose some very difficult practical, legal, and social questions, to say nothing of the technical problems. No such sterilant exists today, nor does one appear to be under development. To be acceptable, such a substance would have to meet some rather stiff requirements. It must be uniformly effective, despite widely varying doses received by individuals and despite varying degrees of fertility and sensitivity among individuals. It must be free of dangerous or unpleasant side effects, and it must have no effect on members of the opposite sex, children, old people, pets, or livestock. We could move forward to 1991 with the Club of Rome and their document on the first global revolution, which they wrote uh, on page 75. In searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. In their totality and their interactions, these phenomena do, do constitute a common threat, which must be confronted by everyone together. But in designating these dangers as the enemy, we fall into the trap, which we have already warned readers about, namely mistaking symptoms for causes. All these dangers are caused by human intervention in natural processes, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself." End quote. 
uh, you can go and look at all of the work that I've done on this subject over the years. The Last Word on Overpopulation, my report specifically on Paul Ehrlich as a pseudoscience charlatan. You can look at Bill Gates and the Population Control Grid, where I go through a lot of the Rockefeller Foundation documents and WHO programs, etc., to create uh, birth control injections and the work, the scientific work that has been done on that subject over the years. I talked about the secret meeting of the billionaires, including Bill Gates and David Rockefeller and Ted Turner and other extremely powerful people uh, in who were met specifically to talk about the problem of the growing human population and how they can combine their wealth and resources to do something about that pop problem. Uh, this is something that's reiterated time and time again by people in positions of power and people of great wealth, like Prince Philip and his friends. What do you see as the biggest challenges in, in conservation? Yeah, the, the growing human population. Because if where we are, there's nothing else. The negative impact of population growth on all of our planetary ecosystems is becoming appallingly evident. I suspect that you could read a score of reports by bodies concerned with global problems and see that population is clearly one of the drivers that underlies them all. So Melinda and I wondered whether providing new medicines and keeping children alive, would that create more of a population problem? And what the developing world does not need is more children. Hmm. And I think that was the biggest aha to Bill and me when we got into this work, is we asked ourselves, of course, the same hard-nosed question you'd ask, which is, if you get into this work and you start to save these children, will women just keep overpopulating the world? And thank goodness the converse is absolutely true. I could go on and on and on and on. And in fact, my attentive long-term listeners will know that none of these quotations or things that I'm pulling out are startlingly new. You will have heard them before in work that I have done on these subjects in the past. These are literally just things that I'm coming up with off the top of my head on this particular subject of population control in various forms. So uh, this is all well-documented, but <clears throat> no matter how many different pieces of information we add to this list, Will it ever really convince the unconvincible who are choosing to ignore this information or to put it to the side or to try to dismiss it in some way? Um, and the answer, of course, is no. Um, and I, I could do similar lists of on-the-record information about the open conspiracy openly admitted to on any number of other topics. Again, this is just on that one particular subject of population control, the chemical control of the population. We could amass such a list on the subject of global government, the conspiracy to create a global government. How could that possibly work? I've never heard of that. We could go through all sorts of the examples of the admitted open conspiracy in that realm, or the control of the monetary supply, or the attempt to transform a system of education into a system of indoctrination in order to explicitly, as has been admitted, not to create independent free thinkers, but to create obedient workers for the factories and other such things. Again, we could go through just a list of people saying these things and admitting to this open conspiracy that is not hidden at all. 
But again, what good will it do to convince the unconvincible? And so I guess that brings us to the question of why and how people actually reject this type of information. And the first line of defense that I think a lot of people use is simply to reject inf the, the entire information and everything because of one detail that they can pick out that they don't like in any of this information. And one example of that, I mean, obviously I've seen it quite a bit over the 14 years I've been doing this, but one example of that that's fresh in my mind, someone recently getting in touch with me to say how they thought the uh, Bill Gates and the Population Control Grid and potentially the entire Bill Gates documentary was ridiculous because you might recall in that clip, that news clip about the super friends, uh, the secret good club that was meeting, the billionaires meeting to discuss the problem of human population and how they can combine their resources to confront that problem. That clip, that news clip from ABC mentioned amongst Ted Turner and David Rockefeller and uh, Bill Gates also mentioned Oprah Winfrey. And this person thought it was so ridiculous that Oprah would be involved in any of the plan like this that they decided to, I guess, reject the entire documentary wholesale and all the information contained therein. <laughs> so that is one response. And I suppose if you are confronted with someone who will completely dismiss all information because some tidbit of theirs out there seems outlandish to them, then I, I don't know what to, I don't think there is a way to reach that type of person. More seriously, you might get people who will, for example, do what a lot of people are doing these days, which is turn off their critical thinking switch and turn on the the search engine, of course, Google, because you have to trust Google's search. And the first thing you'll find is the fact checkers coming along to debunk this type of information. For example, on specifically that quote from EcoScience that we read earlier about adding sterilants to the water supply and the considerations uh, that go into that idea for involuntary fertility control. You'll find, for example, readily available at the top of the search results, something by PolitiFact. Uh, who wants to debunk this claim. Specifically, they say Glenn Beck claims science czar John Holdren forced uh, proposed forced abortions and putting sterilants in the drinking water to control population, which they rate with their highly technical pants-on-fire categorization, i.e. it's a total, complete, stinking lie. Every word of that is just hot nonsense. But I would invite you to... I mean, most people, of course, only look at the rating... Uh, because, again, this isn't about actually finding information. It's about turning off your critical thinking faculty. But if you actually read through that article, they do in actually include more of the context of that that makes clear that, in fact, this was something that they they are putting in that book seri for serious consideration and that they say may be necessary. But, of course, there's legal considerations and, and we don't have the scientific ability to do this at this time. Um, so they try to dismiss the entire thing and the entire claim, even though it is there in black and white. And I, of course, do not engage in that type of out-of-context information. That's why I include the link to the, to the actual text itself, so you can go and read it, including the entirety of EcoScience, which is on archive.org. What an incredible resource. You can go and read it for yourself for free right now. There is nothing stopping you. And I've linked up the specific page where that adding sterilant to the water supply quotation comes from, but I invite you to read through that entire section on involuntary uh, sterilization. Uh, involuntary fertility control, where they say, for example, the third approach to population limit limitation is that of involuntary fertility control. Several coercive proposals deserve discussion, mainly because some countries may ultimately have to resort to them unless current trends in the birth rates are rapidly reverted, reversed by other means. And you can go and read through this, and uh, constantly throughout this section, they're talking about the things that may be necessary, that this is looked at, uh, there may be legal problems with this, but it may be 
something that we have to do. So please do read these things in context uh, so that you know when a politifact comes along and says, it's been debunked. We've claimed that's pants on fire, even though we've actually quoted some of the quotes that show that clearly they were uh, at least talking about these as things that are being looked at and proposed. Uh, even if they, I mean, the question is, oh, are they advocating for this? Well, that, again, is completely subjective. And all they have to do is, as they did, get a quote from John Holdren saying, I never advocated for that. I was just talking about it. <laughs> okay, well, then I guess it doesn't exist. <laughs> but anyway, that's that's one way that people will try to dismiss these types of things. Um, another way uh, will be to point out that some of the quotations that I was pulling from there were warnings about this as a potential danger, not as advocating of this or describing the process, but simply saying this is a warning. And so, for example, Bertrand Russell was not saying this is what a government should do. He was warning that governments in the future will try to do this. They will use diets, injections, and injunctions to try to mold people's perceptions and behaviors to the point where uh, the uh, having a, a population rebel against their masters would be as unthinkable as having a, uh, a bunch of sheep rebel against the practice of eating mutton, um, to use his infamous formulation there. And uh, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, was warning about the, the final revolution, the ultimate revolution. Oh, the governments could use these coercive techniques in the future, and wouldn't it be horrible? And again, I cannot read into the minds of and hearts of men, so I don't know whether Russell or... Huxley or others are genuine in their professed horror at such ideas or whether they're salivating at the prospect of such technologies coming into view. Either way, it doesn't make a difference to the fundamental point that is being made that these technologies do exist to some extent, are being worked on. The quotations we're talking about were 50, 60, 70 years in the past. So yes, they are decidedly uh, further along in those types of technologies now. Um, and that that is a very real possibility and that there are people who are working on these things. Uh, for example, if you go in and look at the Huxley context in greater uh, quotes in greater context and the interviews that he did, he talked about visiting some of the labs where they were talking about implanting electrodes in the, mi the brains of mice in order to to influence their behaviors. And as I've pointed out before, Jose Delgado, for example, and again, that, that research is 50 years old, implanting electrodes in the uh, brains of bulls to stop charging, raging bulls mid in their mid-tracks with a button, remote control. Again, this is 50-year-old technology at this point. Can you imagine how much further this research has progressed? Um, so again, yes, even if these are warnings rather than advocating for this to happen, it is a warning about what is actually being worked on and things that really can happen. Um, Charles Galton Darwin, on the other hand, seems to, again, be salivating, licking his chops at the prospect of being able to, uh, to chemically master the human species to as as at the point of the next million years is to say it usually takes a million years for a species to evolve into something different but but now with our modern technologies we can do it in the course of a hundred years so again some people are actively advocating for it some aren't but at any rate it still adds up to the the point that there is this type of research being done these technologies are coming online and they are going to drastically and significantly alter the calculus for um, the human population and governance of the human species going forward. Now, uh, another way that people will attempt to dismiss this is to take the weakest or silliest framing of the argument and then dismiss that, the old straw man attacking the straw man. And uh, examples of that are endless. But in this particular sphere, for example, we all know that 
ridiculous, stupid, underpants-on-his-head, raving lunatic, conspiracy loony, Alex Jones. Oh, they're making the freaking frogs gay. <laughs> oh, it's a meme. It's so stupid. It's ridiculous. It's such a stupid, ridiculous meme. Oh, but actually, okay, yeah, no, making the frickin' frogs gay is not its not exactly the most articulate way to put it, but how about making the frogs hermaphroditic due to endocrine-disrupting chemicals that are in the water supply that are changing fish populations and frogs and, and oh yeah, by the way, humans. Uh, a genuine, true, real environmental crisis that is playing out right now. But do you hear about this environmental crisis. No, it is all about that horrible life-giving carbon dioxide that you are breathing out on a daily basis. That becomes the basis for all and the only basis for environmental activism in our day and age. The Gretas of the world can get their international platforms to talk to billions of people and lecture them about their horrible ac human activities. How dare you use energy? Uh, don't you know you're killing Mother Earth? Whereas the genuine, real environmental problems like the endocrine disrupting chemicals that are polluting our environment and changing us as a species right now. Pfft. I mean, yeah, here's all the research and I've done videos on this if you want to see them. Here's all the research going through this and talking about this problem, but uh, it's making the freaking frogs gay is a funny thing to say. So let's all just laugh at it and dismiss it that way. So again, it's taking the straw man and, uh, and toppling that as, as if that actually solves anything. And another way to confront this problem, um, or to not confront the problem, really, uh, to dismiss all of this information, is sort of an out-of-sight, out-of-mind approach. Oh, well, you're talking about this as if it's a problem, but I don't hear about it on the daily news. They're not talking about these types of things, so I, I, I guess it doesn't matter that much, right? Well, let's take a look, for example, at the question of what the endocrine disrupting chemicals that are polluting our environment right now, what are they doing? What are the possible effects? Well, here's one undeniable, uncontroversial, uncontroversial scientific fact. Sperm rates amongst Western men have been plummeting for half a century now. There have been severe, drastic declines in fertility, uh, at least amongst Western men in the past half century or so. It's a well-known phenomenon. It's been talked about as a crisis by many scientists. It's even been featured in documentaries on your television. Some synthetic chemicals can disrupt or block the functioning of testosterone in the body, permanently damaging the sexual development of male children. This disruption of the human body's own system may be the greatest unintended consequence of the 20th century's chemical revolution. So, yes, this is an ongoing, acknowledged crisis that is taking place right now that has even been talked about in normie-friendly places like the CBC and documentaries that have been put out on this subject. So one would think that people would be more concerned about it, but they don't seem to be. No, the existential threat to humanity and the only thing in the world that we should be talking about or thinking about right now, of course, is the threat of COVID-19. That is the only thing that we should talk about, unless, well, I suppose the other existential threat that we need to be concentrating on as the only real basis for environmental threat, of course, is climate change and that horrible life-giving CO2 gas that you 
ex- exhale on a daily basis. We need to put all of our time and energy and resources into thinking about that. Endocrine, endocrine disrupt, disrupting chemicals all over, polluting the environment, uh, literally transforming fish populations, let alone what it's doing to humanity and the disappearing male, ah, you know, whatever. I don't see the the the, the sperm count tracker on the corner of the, the news every time I tune into the MSM, like the way I see the COVID-19 death tracker. We should concentrate on this, what they're telling us to, and nothing else. So that does, I think, broach the, the broader subject of media control of our perceptions and how that works. Um, which should be an obvious point, uh, clearly to my audience, but probably not to the people that you were trying to bring this uh, to the attention, uh, this information to the attention of. Um, So uh, what are some other ways that people will try to dismiss this information? One sort of new one that I received recently that I thought was interesting, but perhaps worth a mention, is somebody wrote in recently to say that they they were looking at the Gates documentary, but well, just because Bill Gates spends all this money, funds these various organizations, how does that mean he has control over what they do? I mean, it's not like Bill Gates is, is in control just because he is one of the funding sources of these various organizations. How can you prove that? Well, Okay, I mean, I would first invite you to watch Bill, uh, How Bill Gates Monopolized Global Health, the first part of the four-part Gates series, which I think that's the explicit entire purpose of that part of the documentary and goes into a great degree of detail. But if you want one specific example of that, I will point you to uh, Arata Koichi, who um, was part of the WHO, in fact, the, the malaria chief, uh, the program, the malaria program of the WHO. And he was talking in an internal memo about how uh, Gates funding had locked up malaria scientists in what essentially amounted to a research cartel and was stifling debate about the best ways to actually treat and combat malaria, prioritizing only those methods that relied on new technology or developing new drugs, i.e. that served Bill Gates's bottom line business interests and those of his crony partners in his Gavi cartel, for example. Um, so that that's, again, it's open and on the record. And he talked about how Gates' money, If again, please follow the link from that documentary, as I always provide the link for the context of that quotation, where it comes from, from a 2008 New York Times article where they talk about this internal memo at length and talk about how Gates is creating an alternate WHO by setting up um, various bodies um, like the Health Metrics, uh, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, uh, which received a $105 million grant from the Gates Foundation to essentially take over certain things that the WHO ostensibly does, but Gates wanted it done in a different way. So he essentially founded a different organization to do that with $105 million. But how does $105 million mean that he controls what all these people are doing? <laughs> I mean, again, I don't know how to respond to that other than to say, I, I don't know I don't know what your argument is and how that funding is not relevant. Um, uh, another way that people will attempt to dismiss, dismiss this information, I'm sure we've all heard some variant of this in the past, but someone would have talked. How could there be a big coordinated agenda like this without someone talking? Well, as I've been attempting to demonstrate, so much of this is an open conspiracy. Look at the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution and these things that would sound crazy if you were saying, no, secretly they want to they want to use this Great Reset as a way to, to rewrite the social contract and force us into a new society where we're going to be brain chipped and, and controlled in every aspect of what we do. That would sound crazy until you actually show people 
oh, this is actually Klaus Schwab writing about this in his book, or at least having it ghostwritten for him uh, in this book. And look, you can read these quotes. <laughs> in, at which point, it, it, it immediately becomes in the mind of that person who is unconvincible. Well, of course. I mean, yeah, of course. That's, that's exactly how it's supposed to be. Which is such an interesting psychological maneuver that people play with on themselves, essentially. Well, it can, that's conspiracy. That's ridiculous. That's conspiracy. Oh, really? Here's them saying it. Oh, well, of course. How else would it work? <laughs> but uh, another example of that was someone would have talked. I mean, that was the entire premise of my 9-11 whistleblower series. Someone would have talked about something happening. Well, there are many people who have tried to talk about their specific personal understanding of various aspects of the 9-11 operations and what was happening. And they've been silenced, suppressed, ignored, covered up, shut up in various ways, fired and and uh, undermined at every opportunity. Um, so look at the 9-11 whistleblower series for more on that. Or think of the NSA case. I, I, it still strikes me as humorous because, again, I've been doing this since 2007. Uh, and at that time when I started, I was trying to talk about things like stellar wind and the fact, yes, the NSA is listening to all your communications. You are being spied upon and all of these communications are being stored. And uh, that was outlandish conspiracy theory to the average normie at that time. Fast forward in our current context in 2021, that's just, of course, of course, they're collecting all this data. And of course, I mean, it's not like an NSA agent is sitting there reading every one of your emails. Well, no, that's not what whatever whatever fantasy comic book version of this you came up with in your mind. That Again, that's the straw man. No, but all of this information is being collected, stored, and algorithmically analyzed. And of course, persons of interest can be instantly flagged and have all of their correspondence available at a moment's notice. And everyone knows this now. That isn't conspiracy theory anymore. It's just conspiracy fact. So it's not really interesting or relevant to those people. Um, but I would, again, it's funny from my perspective, talking about this before it was a commonly acknowledged fact and being called a conspiracy theorist for talking about it, despite the fact there were many, many people who were talking about this long before Edward Snowden came along and became the one and only NSA whistleblower that the public has ever heard of. There was J. Kirk Weeb and William Benny, uh, Binney, and there was Mark Klein and Thomas Drake and Russ Tice and all of these people talking about this in great detail with very specific information that they were in a personal position to know about beforehand with documented evidence, etc. But, uh, you know, whatever. They weren't covered um, breathlessly by the media. So, again, people just have never heard of them and don't care about their stories. And it was a ridiculous conspiracy theory to even talk, to even acknowledge the existence of these NSA whistleblowers until Edward Snowden came along, um, which is an interesting sign in and of itself, isn't it? Again, it was not secret. It, it was all out in the open for anyone who was willing to actually listen to what these people were saying and to look at their evidence. But so few people were because they weren't being told to look at that evidence. So, uh, I, 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 again, that's, that's one aspect of all of this. The other, I think the other point that John is driving at is sort of the deeper question, how can a big, vast, coordinated agenda towards something as, like a culling of the human population or something grandiose like that, the creation of a global government, how can that possibly function on a functional level? How can that work? How can you have millions of people around the world acting towards this agenda without... I mean, without a broader sort of knowledge of where this is going and more people uh, actively opposing what's going on at the higher levels. And again, I think that comes 
to the point of the actual functioning of this type of conspiracy. How does it actually work in reality? And do you really need millions of people to be all consciously on the same page working towards an agenda that is exactly as laid out by, in some of these more grandiose statements about diet injections and injunctions and stuff, uh, stuff like that? Or can it work on a more piecemeal fa fashion? And this is an exceptionally important point and one that I've talked about many times, but I think was best articulated and I first heard articulated uh, by G. Edward Griffin, specifically pointed to the work of Carol Quigley, uh, the Quigley formula, as he called it. In fact, going back to really Cecil Rhodes and the round table and, and ideas that have been around before that. Cecil Rhodes, as viewers of the World War I conspiracy will know, basing his ideas on uh, the Jesuits, uh, Jesuit order and how they function and things like this. So this is very, 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 very old ideas, nothing new here, about how to actually create an organization in which only a few people are really on the in inner core of the clique that is working towards an agenda, but you can have many, many people working with that inner clique on, on that agenda without them even being aware that that agenda exists. How can that happen? As I say, G. Edward Griffin, I think, expounded on that uh, in a very interesting lecture called The Quigley Formula, which I hope you will watch in its entirety. And that's basically what Cecil Rhodes did. He adopted the strategy that Weissop created of, he called it rings within rings within rings. That means that the center of the secret society would be run by one individual with perhaps a little brain trust around him of two or three people. They would be the absolute rulers of this whole structure. Then they would create around them a ring, as they called it, a larger organization, which they would dominate. They would control it absolutely from the center. But the other members who were recruited into this larger organization would not be allowed to know that there was an inner control and direction. They were brought in for a lesser view of the whole purpose. And that was the outer ring. And that might be 20, 30, 50 people, maybe 100 people. And then outside of that, there would be a larger ring, another organization created with hundreds of people, perhaps thousands of people. And they would not be allowed to know or would they even suspect that there was an inner ring controlling the larger outer ring. And this is what Weissop called rings within rings within rings. Cecil Rhodes thought that was a dandy idea. And so he adopted it as the structure for his secret society. Now in his group, the inner circle they called the Society of the Elect. That was the name Rhodes put to it. It originally consisted of Cecil Rhodes and a brain trust from British banking and politics. A very small number of highly placed, very wealthy people. The center of gravity, as I mentioned a moment ago, shifted eventually to the Rockefeller Group in the United States with centers of influence in such other organizations as the Bilderberg Group, the Trilateral Commission, and that sort of thing. We've all heard about these. And the goal shifted away from the control from the British Empire to a international control through something called the New World Order, is the phrase they adopted, with control primarily focused in New York, with the United Nations meant to be the hub of this global government. And I should say global government, not just any global government, 
but one based on the model of collectivism, which means total control over every human being. Not much room left there for personal freedom. Now, the secondary rings around the society of the elect were called roundtables. And they were formed in the United States, in Britain, and all of the former British dependencies. And they still exist today. They operate under that name. Around the roundtables, a larger ring, a tertiary ring, was formed. And they called them front groups in a generic sense in each country where there were roundtables. And they took on the name in the dependencies of the former dependencies of the British Empire, they took on the name of Royal Institute for International Affairs. That's where you'll find them today under that name in all of the countries, Great Britain, Canada, Australia, and so forth. The Royal Institute of International Affairs. But in the United States, the word royal didn't go over too well. And so they changed it completely and they called it the Council on Foreign Relations. But it has exactly the same relationship to the roundtables, which is surrounding the society of the elect, which is the secret society that still functions today, was created by Cecil Rhodes. And ladies and gentlemen, after a hundred years of operation and of penetration into the power centers of society, the Rhodesian network as I call it, now is close to its final achievement, which is its goal, the creation of a true new world order. All right, well, that was just a clip from the 74-minute lecture by G. Edward Griffin, talking about, for example, the work of Carol Quigley, including the thousand-page tome of Tragedy and Hope. So I, I, there's a lot more to be said about this. But unfortunately, that's part of the problem. As you can see, John can formulate a question in a couple of sentences, and I'm sure we've all heard those some form of that question, in a couple of sentences from some un, uh, someone who's not just not believing, but not convincible on these subjects. Uh, an argument offered in bad faith. Well, how could this work? How could you have such a big thing? Therefore, I choose to believe it. It's an argument from incredulity, which at its base is a logical flaw. It is uh, fallacious. But uh, as you can see, uh, first attempting to actually delimit the the what argument is being made here. So what, what specifically are we talking about and where does the incredulity lie? And then providing the information and countering the various counters to that information uh, it can take, well, an hour, several hours. It could take hundreds of hours. It could take 14 years plus and counting, which in some sense is what the Corbett Report has been doing for 14 years and will hopefully continue to do for a very long time to come is to expound on this quest to essentially satisfy all these types of uh, objections, possible objections. How could you possibly believe this? Well, because of this and 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 this. And then eventually the person will just stick their fingers in their ears. And that, I think, is the core part of the problem. It's not, generally speaking, a question that's asked in good faith. If you have a good faith interlocutor who is genuinely asking this question out of a position of genuinely wanting to know more and genuinely presenting challenges that they genuinely believe 
uh, that actually present challenges to the information you're presenting, great! You are now engaged in a real conversation, and you can have real debate and hopefully fruitfully construct a new understanding, not just for the person that you're talking to, but yourself as well, because there are genuine challenges and things that need to be said and arguments that need to be made. Um, but until we actually broach that real conversation, I don't think we're going to get there. And broaching that real conversation can be a, a challenge, because as I say, a lot of people are not acting in good faith when they bring this information up or ask these types of questions. So anyway, this is one attempt at an answer. And of course, this is, again, is only about one sliver of a slice of a fraction of the type of material that I talk about, but it's the type of thing that one would have to do in order to really fruitfully begin that debate and to to move the conversation forward past the stuck on stupid argument of, I, I can't believe it, therefore it's not real. Um, which we've seen how far that gets us. In fact, I will note that uh, in the broader email that John sent to me, he did note that he did start to have questions about what was going on during the 2008 financial crisis, but then buried his head in the sand and essentially went on with his life, which he now regrets, which I think is kind of the lesson in all of this. Again, you, yeah, you can continue to... There's no end to the number of ways that people can come up with to trick themselves into thinking this information is important or, oh, I can't believe it, it can't be happening, until it's too late. And that's the really the rub of this issue, because as we are seeing now with the erection of the biosecurity state and what is coming into view now with the fourth industrial revolution going into the, the Great Reset and all of this, there is no more time for sticking our heads in the sand and ignoring these issues. No, this is about your ability to live your life, to leave your home, to, uh, to say no to the violent abrogation of your bodily autonomy with forced experimental medical interventions and other such extremely fundamentally important issues that at this point, if people aren't concerned about, then I think they're, I'd say they're beyond contact at this point. So I think at any rate, perhaps this basic questioning of uh, 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 sort of the, the stage one, uh, I think we moved well beyond that by this point. But hopefully this is a resource that you can use to start start better formulating your own response to this question. As I say, I, I hear it a lot, and I, I even had similar questions myself when I first started along this path. And so, again, I understand why people think this. And hopefully this will be a way of broaching this subject with others. On that note, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Questions for Corbett, but I will be back with you soon, uh, talking about all sorts of different issues at CorbettReport.com. Word to the wise, not at YouTube. Do not follow me there at CorbettReport.com, where you can find the direct downloads for this information, as well as access to all the alternative media platforms that I post to, like Library, Minds, BitChute, Archive, etc. That's going to do it for this week. Looking forward to talking to you again very soon.